desire to learn from God's word. It's just a, it's a joy and a privilege again. I said that this morning, but I'll say it again. It's a joy and a privilege to be here with you and to open God's word and to study it with you. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This morning we looked at Luke 1, and this evening what I'd like to do for the next few weeks is to begin looking at the birth narratives as Matthew records them and to see and celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ as we think about this season of the, both Thanksgiving and uh, this season uh, as we approach Christmas and remember uh, the incarnation of our Lord. Well, as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 this evening, what we find is a genealogy, which many of you probably see and yawn and think, what on earth are we going to do with this genealogy? Well, let me begin by talking about genealogy more generally, and it hopefully will prepare you to appreciate what it is that we see here in Matthew chapter 1. A few years ago, a friend of mine got me interested in my own family history, and I started to research where my family came from. And At first, my ambition was simple and straightforward. I, I only wanted to compile a list of names, bookended by dates if I could, to trace, trace my family history back as far as I could. That was all I wanted to do. But my friend challenged me to think more deeply about the subject. With these words, he said, genealogy is not just about names and dates, but between those two dates, behind each name, there's a story. There's a life, a life that is valuable and worthy of knowing about. And no one else in the world perhaps will ever take an interest of many of those people in your family tree, he told me. But you will. Those people lived lives that were full and uh, filled with stories. And so as we come to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, this evening, excuse me, and I prepare to read it and you think to yourself, is he really going to read all those names? And yes, I am. Think about the stories that stand behind these names and the broader story that Matthew is telling us through this genealogy. So if you found your place, follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of 
Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Rakim, Rakim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed this is your word. And you would have it that when we open our Bibles to what we now call the New Testament, and begin to read the record of the stories of what you did in your Son, Jesus Christ. You gave us this genealogy to remind us of all that went before, all the promises that you made, all the people who you called, and through whom you worked, through whom you prophesied, and through whom you brought the Christ so that we might be saved. We thank you, Lord for this gracious gift of your word and this gracious gift that we have of salvation through your Son. So we pray again as we pray always. Open our minds and soften our hearts, Lord. Make us to understand your word. Make us to cherish it, even these difficult passages. Make us to love it. Make us to hear it. Make us to do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I made the claim at the outset that genealogies tell us a story. What is the story that this particular genealogy tells us? It tells us a story of promises kept. It tells us a story of surprising grace. It tells us a story of the tragic consequences of sin. And it tells us a story of redemption and restoration as we see God's faithfulness through it all. How does it tell us that story? Well, first let me step back and ask a more fundamental question. How is it that we should approach a text like this? In these evenings when, I gather, when we gather together, one of the things that I want to do is to not only preach to you, but also instruct you in a way that helps you to open God's Word and read it for yourself and study it for yourself and understand it for yourself. And so tonight as we look at a genealogy, I want to reflect on the fact that the Bible has many genealogies. And they all demand the same kind of tools of us if we're to read them and understand what on earth they are doing in our Bibles. And so, as I give you some principles to help you make sense of them, turn back to Genesis chapter 5, and what we'll do is we'll look at Matthew in comparison to the, one of the very first genealogies we encounter in Scripture. So hold your place in Matthew 1, but turn back to Genesis 5. I won't read all of these names, just as I read the names of the gene genealogy in Matthew 1 but we'll use it to reflect on the kinds of things that we see in the genealogies of Scripture. And the basic fundamental tool that you need to have in your tool belts if you're going to interpret the Scriptures rightly is the ability to make observations, to look at a thing and look at it again. And when you think you've seen everything that's there, to look back to it and see what it is that you've missed. One of the things that you should see, though, in genealogies generally, is that they all have a pattern. So if you look at the genealogy of Genesis 5, we only need to read 
what we read in, chap- in chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And generally speaking, we can take that line and replace the name Adam with Seth and replace the name Seth with Seth's son, Enoch, excuse me, Enosh, and we can just go on and on down that list and you follow the same pattern. Matthew's is simpler. So-and-so fathered so-and-so. Why we observe the pattern is because it helps us then to see the ways in which the author departs from the pattern. Because the author, by these deviations, by these unique things that he notes, indicates something of his focus, indicates to us what is important to him. And so if you were to peruse through Genesis 5, you would see in the course of ten generations that when you come to the seventh generation, you read something different. You read that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. You don't read those words that you see in every single other generation, and he died. And it's very striking. It should be striking to us. We should say, oh my goodness, there is life outside the garden. There is the possibility of communion with God outside the garden. And so too, when we look at Matthew chapter 1 and we read down the, lo- the lines, we see that one person fathers another, but then along the way, we pick up these little bits where Matthew departs from the pattern. He notes Judah and his brothers. Again, later on, he notes Jeconiah and his brothers. These brothers aren't, strictly speaking, in the line of Christ. They're just distant cousins. Or uncles. And yet, he makes note of them, and we have to ask the question, why? We'll come to that. Similarly, he makes note of four women in this genealogy. Four women, that is, prior to noting Mary. And again, we have to ask why, because he does not normally do this within the course of going through these generations. We We say then, why does Matthew note these particular women, and what is he telling us? And similarly, we pick up on other, uh, other things that Matthew does whereby he departs from his pattern. One of the things that really requires a little bit of investigation is this whole bit about the number 14 and why it's so important that he structures this genealogy in three sets of 14. We'll talk about that as well. But as we look at that, and if we compare that second set of 14 with the genealogies we find in the book of Chronicles, we notice that Matthew has not named every single king in that line. He has intentionally left out the name of about six different kings. And again, we have to ask the question, why has Matthew departed from the pattern? And so you see, by using this skill of observation, you start to note that Matthew is not simply recording a list of the generations, though he's doing that. But he's using this list of the generations to tell us something profound, something amazing, to tell us the stories that I've listed, the story of promises kept, the story of surprising grace, the story of the tragic consequences of sin, and the story of redemption and restoration. Now, there are other things that we can look at and observe and other ways in which we can approach these texts, but I think these two principles will be sufficient for tonight. You note the patterns, 
then you note the way in which the author departs from the pattern. We're going to do that as we proceed through the narrative. But let's note at first the way in which he introduces this genealogy. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Now we could literally translate that as the Bible of the Genesis of Jesus. In the Greek, the words are the same. And immediately that should call to mind the book of Genesis, should cue in our minds that Matthew has in his mind the whole testimony of what we call the Old Testament. He wants us to think about that. He wants us to bring our knowledge of the Old Testament to this genealogy. Think about it. Another, Another thing that we notice as we look at this genealogy is that he begins by naming Jesus Christ, which is strange if you compare it with every other genealogy in Scripture. The very first one that we read is the book of the generations of Adam. In other words, a genealogy normally starts with the principal ancestor, not with the final descendant. And yet here, Matthew begins by naming this as the genealogy of Jesus, not the genealogy of Abraham. He's cueing to us that this is to be our focus. This person, Jesus Christ, is what it's all about. Every other genealogy is about the person who is the principal ancestor, but this one is about the one to whom the genealogy has come, the one who stands at the end of the line. It's all about him. And it's all about him because he is the one through whom God is going to keep all of the promises that he made to these generations that came before him. We also note that he names two specific ancestors in this line, namely David and Abraham. Why does he call to our attention these two men? I suggest to you the answer is that he wants us to think about the promises that God made to these two men. If we simply think of uh, Genesis chapter 12, we recall God calling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and saying to him, go to the land that I will show you. And he made him a promise when he called him. He said, I will make a name for you. I will make your name great. I will give you a land. I will make a nation of you. And I will, through you, bless the nations. As the story of Genesis unfolds, we come to chapter 15, and we see there that God affirms that promise that he made by a covenant, a strong and binding covenant that he made with Abraham to do all that he promised he would do, namely, to make him a blessing to the nations, to give him a land, to make him a nation. And yet, Abraham would go many years childless, we recall. But then, when God gave him a son in the course of time, when he gave him Isaac through Sarah, and he called him to take Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, and Abraham obeyed by faith, he did not question, he did not try to find a way to wriggle out of this challenge. He went to the mountain, and he had his hand raised with the knife in his hand, And God stopped him and provided the ram in the thicket as the substitute. And after having seen his faith, God said to Abraham that surely he will fulfill all the promises that he had made to him. And that not only would he make him a blessing to the nations, but that he said, through your offspring, singular, not through your many children, but through your one child who is to come, I will bless the nations. And he will possess the gate of his enemies. 
And you can see that there in Genesis chapter 22. I suggest to you that Matthew wants us to bear in mind these promises so that we will see that in Jesus Christ, God is bringing the fulfillment because he's brought this genealogy to that promised offspring through whom God would say, he, God said he would bless the nations. And so too, he calls to mind David because in the same way God made a strong and binding covenant with David. You'll recall in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it came into David's heart to build a temple for the Lord. And yet, God stopped him. He told the prophet Nathan, I didn't ask for a temple. I'm not asking David. In fact, David won't build a temple for me. His son will, but he won't. And then he says to David, you wanted to build a house for me. And of course, I paraphrase, but he said, you wanted to build a house for me. But I will build a house for you. And by that, he meant a dynasty an unending line that I will make a kingdom for you that will never end. He said, your son will reign forever. Now that promise can be realized in one of two ways. Either an unending succession of kings that reigns in perpetuity forever. But we know that that didn't come to pass. We can just see it right here in the genealogy. Or it can be fulfilled in a single son of David who reigns forever and ever and ever. And Matthew is telling us in this genealogy from the very start that God in Jesus Christ is bringing the fulfillment of those promises, of those covenants. God is doing all that he promised. So this is a story of promises kept. It's a story of surprising grace. I mentioned four women, four women who are named in this genealogy, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and the wife of Uriah. And there also is a peculiarity because he doesn't call Bathsheba by her name, but he calls her by the name of her first husband whom David killed. And again, we have to ask why. Why these four women and not any others? Why the wife of Uriah and not Bathsheba? Now, I would suggest to you that there are two reasons why Matthew highlights these women. The first reason is that these women were outsiders. Three of them were Gentiles, and one was married to a Gentile. Tamar was a Canaanite, and yet she was the one through whom Judah had Perez. Ruth was a Moabite. Rahab was from Jericho. And Uriah was a Hittite. None of these were Israelites by birth. And yet what God is showing that these outsiders, these Gentiles, were incorporated into this line of Christ as a sign that that blessing that he promised to Abraham that would go forth to the nations really would go forth to the nations. That the Christ when he came would not just be for one people, but would be for all people. And God showed that in times past by bringing these individuals into the community of faith by faith, not by blood, but about bringing them into that community by faith. And especially in Rahab, as we recall her story, we think about what James says about Rahab, how she was an example of faith because she hid the spies and she declared her allegiance to Yahweh and denied any allegiance to the people of Jericho who rebelled against the one true God. 
And so, when I say that this is a story of surprising grace, I say that because of the way Matthew highlights these four women who were outsiders and yet received grace and became part of the line that would lead to Christ. Something else about these four women, for at least three of them, they were all associated with scandal. Tamar, she, if you recall her story from Genesis 38, was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And Judah's sons were wicked men, and because of their wickedness, God struck his firstborn down before he had any sons. At that time, it was the practice that the next son would take his brother's wife, and his firstborn son would then be assigned as the, uh, as the one who would inherit his brother's, um, all of his brother's uh, property and, 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 and wealth. That he would be assigned not to the second brother, but to the first brother who died. But the second brother was wicked. God struck him down. And the third brother was too young. And so Judah, you remember from Genesis 38, told Tamar, wait, and when he is of age, I will give you as a husband my third son. But he did not follow through on his word. And so Tamar went and stood on the side of the road and posed as a prostitute. And by Judah, she bore another son. And you see the wickedness in Judah. And you see how easily he was led to this sin. And then when he found out and he was not aware that it was Tamar, he wanted to have her put to death. And ultimately he realized when she produced his signet ring as a sign that he was the one that had done this, he realized she's more righteous than I. Not to say that she was righteous, but to say that he was the one who was really in the wrong. And you see the scandal in all of it associated with Tamar. And similarly, Rahab didn't pose as a prostitute. She was by vocation a prostitute. And yet she demonstrated remarkable faith and ceased in that way of life when she joined the people of Israel and became a wife and a mother. And I was also incorporated into the line of Christ. Ruth alone was called a worthy woman, but only because Boaz protected her from worthless men who might prey upon her when she was a widow. And then, of course, we know the story of Bathsheba and David and David's adultery and the murder of Uriah that he perpetrated in order to cover it up. But in all of this, we see in their association with scandal that God is one who shows grace to sinners, that God's grace knows no bounds. And for all who come to him by faith and repent of their sins, there is grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the proof is that God has placed these women who we would look at and say, they don't deserve to be in the line of Christ. And he has said, no, they will be in the line. And not only will they be in the line, but of all the women in the line of Christ, they will be the ones who are named. And so this is a story of surprising grace. But it's also a story of the tragic consequences of sin. I've already mentioned the sins of Judah and the sins of David. We see how Judah really is the beginning of this kingly line, the beginning of this royal line. And David is at the height of the royal line, the first king in that line, the first who would receive a promise that God made about Judah that the scepter would not depart from his tribe. And yet we see how similar they are in their sin. Both men are adulterers. Both men uh, 
you know, committed these grievous sins. And as the line unfolds, as the line of David what unfolds, we see a succession of kings who we know from the book of Kings and from the book of Chronicles. We know that these men, by and large, did not follow God. By and large, these men chose to worship idols, chose to follow the practices of all the other nations, chose not to trust in the Lord. And so if we see a rise from Judah to David, we see a decline from David to the deportation of Babylon. And Matthew highlights this with that simple phrase, and his brothers. Why on earth does he mention Judah and his brothers, and then that final king of the line, Jeconiah, and his brothers? It's a way of putting two bookends on that first, those first two sets of 14. To say we've come full circle. We've come back to the beginning. This line that would ultimately lead to a king did not stay at the heights, but declined because of sin. Declined because these kings rejected the way of the Lord and chose not to live in the fear of the Lord. And of course, it ultimately brought the end of that line. It brought the end of that kingdom. But that was not an end to the promises of the Lord. But it does show us the tragic consequences of sin. But it also is a story of redemption and restoration. A story of redemption and restoration. Here we also must look to the idea of God keeping His promises and note His faithfulness to His Word. One of the ways that Matthew highlights this is by what he doesn't say. That is, the names he doesn't include. There are three kings in a row who he omits. And all of these three kings have a few things in common. One of them started well. They all finished badly. But they were all assassinated. And if you read through the book of Kings, you see that when a person is assassinated, a king in particular is assassinated, it's a way of saying, we want new rule. We want a new king. And in fact, one of the kings who is not named, when he's assassinated, his, um, his mother takes over the throne, usurps the throne, Athaliah. And she's not even related to David. She's, a, she's a, from the, um, actually from Ahab's line, from the wicked kings of Israel and the divided kingdom. And it, she takes over, and she rules wickedly. And what I'm saying here, what I'm saying is that Matthew, by omission, highlights these threats to the kingdom to show us that in spite of all those threats, God was still going to fulfill his word, to make us think about those things. Why do I say that the omissions are so meaningful? It's like, it's like when you go home from church and you don't talk about all the people you saw, but you say, oh, I didn't see so-and-so. I didn't notice this person here today. That's the way that many of our afternoons unfold. We first ask, well, who did you talk to today? But then it ultimately becomes a question of who didn't you see? People are conspicuous by their absence. And these kings are conspicuous by their absence from the genealogy. It's as if Matthew is saying, I really want you to go back to Kings and read that part of Kings and remind yourself of the threat to the kingdom that happened there. And he does it again just to emphasize the point by omitting number of kings right at the tail end of the monarchy, right when it's coming to an end, and right after Josiah, we don't get all the kings who follow him, partly because Josiah has a number of sons and each one of them reigns. 
Because what's happening at that time in Judah's history is Egypt and Assyria and Babylon are all fighting and Judah's caught in the middle of it. And as Judah gets caught in the middle of it, each one of these kings deposes one king and replaces him with another of his choosing. And again, it's a threat to the monarchy. It's a threat to the promise from a human perspective that there would be a son of David who would reign forever. And yet God is showing us through this text by reminding us of those things that when he makes a promise, he's good for it. He always fulfills his word. And so indeed in the course of time, God would bring a fulfillment to those promises. That brings us then to that last set of 14 where we're separated by the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation and then after the deportation, once again we have Jeconiah who is the father of Shealtiel, who is the father of Zerubbabel and on and on. And Jeconiah we know from the book of Kings and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel we know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah who speak of Zerubbabel and make promises to the people of Judah naming Zerubbabel. But after that, every single other person in this line, until we get to Joseph, is a nobody. You've never heard of him. Why is that important? Again, let me illustrate this by telling you a little bit about my own family research. My last name is Brown, and as you can imagine, Brown's a common name. Well, my father was Tom Brown. He was the son of Ed Brown, who was the son of Fred Brown Jr., who was the son of Fred Brown Sr. And as you can imagine, Fred Brown is also a very common name. Searching for Fred Brown in Connecticut in the late 1800s is like searching for a needle in a stack of needles when you have a specific needle in mind. But ultimately, in my search, I was able to find out about Fred Brown. I found out that he was descended from New Hampshire farmers, that during the Industrial Revolution, he went to Waterbury, Connecticut to work in brass factories. What I'm trying to tell you is this is not the kind of person that you write history books about. He's just a nobody, just toiling away in anonymity. And that's what we see here after Zerubbabel. Eliakim and Akim and Zadok, who are these men? They're just farmers and carpenters and nobodies. But we're about to embark on a study of a gospel that highlights a person who said, Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly. I am meek, and I will give you rest. A king who came from his exalted throne in heaven and humbled himself and became a servant. A king who became low and meek and humbled himself even to the point of a cross. And so God is showing us that the way in which that he will fulfill all these promises and the way in which he will restore this kingdom is not through the high and mighty, not through the exalted, but through the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this final set of 14 that brings us to the fulfillment is a list of nobodies toiling away in anonymity. And yet... That's the way that God shows his power and shows his grace and shows his goodness to his people. That's the way that God shows that he is the one who ultimately accomplishes our salvation. Because it doesn't rest on our bloodlines. It doesn't rest 
upon our background or our positions or our titles, but on His grace and His goodness and His might and His faithfulness. And so this genealogy tells us a great story, a wonderful story, and it prepares us for an even greater story as it unfolds in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's the story that this genealogy tells. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless this preaching of your word, that you would set it on our minds and in our hearts, that we would go forth from here as a people who are humble, who embrace lowliness and faith that you are the God who saves a humble people, delights to show favor to those who are meek. You are the God who says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we pray, O oh Lord, that through this genealogy, you would write upon our hearts and on our minds the truth of your goodness and your grace, the truth of your faithfulness in all things, the importance of humility on our part as we seek to follow our Lord, the one through whom you fulfill all your promises. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.